Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, as he said, we're in our Life Together series, and so every year we, uh, we take a few weeks and we talk about some aspect of what we want our life together to be marked by. This year we're talking uh, justice and mercy, and so we're taking four topics, uh, poverty, adoption, this week racial reconciliation, and next week human trafficking, and we're asking three questions. Where did it come from? What did God do about it? What's our role? We're asking these questions because we want to ground uh, our approach in a biblical theology or a biblical framework with a collective next step for us. And so let's talk racial reconciliation. Uh, There is an obvious racial divide in America. From Black Lives Matter to White Lives Matter to Blue Lives Matter to Charlottesville, it's obvious. It's obvious. And no one comes to race, no one uh, comes to the conversation about race neutral. We all have a story. You have a story, I have a story, we have a set of experiences that we bring with us. And so if you're raised in Korea and moved to Houston six months ago, if you're African American but you grew up in an affluent suburb or a low-income neighborhood, if you're white but you grew up rural and poor or in River Oaks, We've all got a set of experiences. We've all got a narrative, a story that we're bringing to the table when we come to the table of the conversation about race. But it's not just individuals with a story. Communities and countries have a collective story as well. And our American story, it includes the dehumanizing practice of slavery. It includes something called the three-fifths compromise, where when deciding representation, we settled and said, you know what, we're going to count certain people as three-fifths of a human. It includes Jim Crow laws that enforced segregation. Our American story is a story of dehumanization. But But if you are globally engaged or a student of history, it seems like this is not just an American story. It seems like this is a bit more of a global story. It seems racism, to some degree, has been woven throughout the narrative of humanity. And so this summer, uh, I went to a forum. The Chronicle hosted a forum. It was on, it was titled, The History of Slavery in the KKK in Texas. Um, It had been planned months before, but it happened to be on the Monday after Charlottesville. So tensions were high. One of the panelists had spent 30 years covering global politics. And during the forum, they opened the mic up for questions. It's a gamble to do that. And one of the questions was this. How much do you think racism played a part in Trump's election? Searching question, is it not? And his answer was this. I have spent my life covering global politics, and I can tell you this. From South Sudan to East Asia, people like to vote for people who look like themselves. Here's what he was saying. He wasn't saying that we're all overtly racist, but he was saying that in my observation of humanity, there is an innate propensity to draw lines by race. 
The point he was making is that the American story isn't just an American story. It's a human story. And so if that's true, we need to, we need to know where it came from. We need to answer the question, where did it come from? And for that, we have to go back to the garden. In the garden, in creation, here's what we see. We see man created from the ground and woman from the man. The only race that existed was the lineage of God. And God said to Adam and Eve, go, go take my lineage and spread it throughout the earth. But then we hit Genesis 3. Then we hit Genesis 3. And, and we have Satan leading man and woman, Adam and Eve, into sin. And, and, and how did he do it? Here, Here's what he didn't do. He, he didn't sit them both down, say, Adam and Eve, hey, let's chat about this. I think uh, that if we uh, can get on the same page, all three of us here, we can really usurp God's authority. He didn't take them out for coffee and chat with them. He got the woman on board, and then she got her husband on board. Point being, Satan had a strategy, divide and conquer. And whether it's Adam and Eve talking fruit in the garden or the church in America talking race today, that is still his strategy. Divide and conquer. And as we keep going through Genesis, we have murder, we have sexual exploitation, which we'll get to next week. We have a flood, and then we hit Genesis 11, and where the story of racial and ethnic division begins. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. City and a tower, a place of refuge, a place of safety, security. There's more going on, but, but at the core of it, one commentator said, this is, the, this is the heart of why you built a city in this day. With its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. This is collective disobedience, the inversion and opposite of Genesis one. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and all have one language. And this is the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So here's what happened in Genesis 11. One people with one language becomes divided ethnicities with divided languages. And as we follow the narrative of human history and we follow the story of human history, here's what happened. Race became a city and a refuge, a place of safety. 
We, we, we live in constant pursuit of safety and security, living out Genesis 11. Part of the brokenness of humanity is that we don't want to collectively live out Genesis 1. We live out Genesis 11, and race became a city of safety, a tower of protection. But, but since our race was never meant to be a city where we found shelter, what did God do about it. Well, what he did about it was one chapter later, he said it to a man named Abram who had become Abraham. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He said, hey, Abraham, leave your people. Go to another people, which was a shadow a shadow of the divine conversation where the father would say to the son, it's time, it's time, leave, leave, go, go and get your people. How will you go get your people, Jesus? How will you go and get your people? Here's how. You're gonna die for their divisions. In Ephesians 2, says that in that moment when Jesus was on the cross dying for the divisions of humanity, it says he made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What, what was the dividing wall that Ephesians 2 is talking about? What, what was the hostility that Ephesians 2 is talking about? It's the divide between Jew and Gentile, which was not just religious divide. It was also the ethnic divide of the day. It was, a, it was the racial lines that didn't cross and what Ephesians 2 is saying is in that moment when Jesus was dying, when he was hanging on the cross, when his arms stretched out and nails were getting driven through his hands and driven through his feet, what was crumbling were the walls that divided us. That's what Ephesians 2 is saying. He's saying it was crumbling right there that in the church, if we had time to expand out Ephesians 2, it would say that we are this dwelling place of God. This dwelling place of God where there are no lines, where there are no ethnic walls, where there's no higher class than one or the other. Chosen race, First Peter 2. United together in Christ. But as a pastor in 2017, I cannot ignore the reality that not that many years ago, men stood up like I'm doing right now and opened the Bible and used the Bible to say, here's why there should be ethnic and racial division inside the church. There will be a day where it gets dealt with. That day is not today. Today we should divide for the sake of harmony. And there was a day where people sat in chairs like you're doing right now and said, amen. By God's grace, not us.
not here, not today, and if you or your family in any way have been affected by the people who stood up and said that or the people who amened that, like my family did. My family on my dad's side were part of the narrative of our story, our American story that would have amened that. That would have thought the three-fifths compromise went too far. If you or your family have been affected by that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But if we had Jesus in the room with us right now, I would obviously not be standing here. <laughs> but if we had him in the room right now and we asked him and we said, hey, this, we, we see this in us. We see this being true in us. So Jesus, what, what then are implications for us? Like if this is who we are, how should we live? Like what's our role in society? What, what should we do? What's our role out there? And Jesus answers this with a story. It's the same story that we looked at for poverty. Uh, I thought about doing it for all four, but we're, we're not going to, just for two, maybe three. I don't know yet. And in verse 29, he tells the story that goes, but he, he being a lawyer, it's always the lawyers, Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, here's what we need to see right here. He, he doesn't specify the race of this man. He, he intentionally, strategically leaves it blank, but he's speaking to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience would have heard... Um, uh, coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, obviously it's a Jew. Obviously this is a Jew, but Jesus doesn't say that. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. If I could be a Greek nerd for just a moment, the way that Jesus words this, the way that it gets recorded, he is screaming the word Samaritan. Why? Because Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. That's why. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So this Samaritan is walking down this dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he sees this man. And he doesn't just see him. He sees his wounds. And he's moved to compassion. And his compassion moves to action. He acted with the compassion of Christ. And so how, how, how can this story, this, 
the story that Jesus told thousands of years ago about this Samaritan who, who saw another man's wounds and it moved him to compassion and action. How can that apply to us today in our cultural 2017 American moment? Well, here's a few ways. One, one when we look at our neighbors, we recognize that some have wounds. When we look at our neighbors, we recognize that some of them have wounds. When we, when we look at other ethnicities in our city and in our country, we recognize that some of them have collective wounds. Did you know that I can trace my family name as far back as I want to? But the panelist uh, that I referenced earlier at the forum, he was there because he wrote a book called Tomlinson Hill. And it was when he was explaining the book that I found out Ladanian Tomlinson, the uh, Hall of Fame, I believe Hall of Fame, uh, running back, TCU grad, right? TCU? One horned frog. Okay, good. Two horned frogs. Never mind. Um, back to Ladanian. This is where I found out Ladanian Tomlinson can't. You know why? You know why? The last name Tomlinson? It's the last name of the slave owner who bought his great, 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 great granddaddy. That's why. Do you not think that carrying the name of a slave owner from generation to generation to generation would not create collective wounds? Do you not think that that comes with generational wounding? So how do we go forward? As a church, specifically sojourn, but how, does, how might this apply to us as citizens where we are? But what do we do to go forward? Well, first we recognize that not everyone's experience is the same as mine. Like the Samaritan on the road, we recognize that other people's experience is different than ours. My daddy never had to tell me how to act when cops were around. My daddy never had to tell me to keep my hands in my pockets when I walked through a grocery store or a gas station. But some of my African-American friends, their dad did we recognize that not everyone's experience is the same as ours. Second, we stop withholding the compassion of Christ from one another. And the compassion of Christ has no room for animosity, distrust, or hostility. This is a two-way street. The Samaritan's compassion pushed him, pushed him past his ethnic divisions. Third, we move toward people not like us. We follow the model of the Samaritan and we make our way and we move our way toward people who are not like us and that will only happen through relationship. It happens through relationship. And so as an individual, what can I do? What can I do, Brandon? What can I do? Well, there is a myriad of things that you can do, and I would say start with making a friend, befriending someone who's not like you. 
If you're African-American in here, befriend somebody who's Asian. If you're Asian, befriend somebody who's Hispanic. If you're Hispanic, befriend somebody who's white. There's a lot that we can do. I'm reading, our staff is reading a book right now uh, where in there there's a story of um, this guy who was, uh, you know, spinning in wheels trying to build a, a white guy trying to, trying, to, trying to build relationships and be a part of this uh, every uh, meeting and event about racial harmony and, and somebody sat him down and said, hey, hey man, you're making it too difficult. Next door to your church building is a business owned by two black guys. Go next door, open the door and say hi and talk like a human about human stuff. But as a church, what are we going to do? What are we going to do collectively together as a church? We are a predominantly, certainly not exclusively, but we are a predominantly white church. And so one thing that we're going to do, as a side note, we're praying that that is not true forever. One thing we're going to do is we're going to partner with an organization that is empowering the next generation of African-American men and women in our city, future leaders in the city that we call home, and that organization is called Forge for Families. Here they are. The Third Ward has a rich history, but presently the community is facing multiple challenges. Underemployment, economic hardship, underperforming schools, and single parenthood challenges the families living here today to see their children experience the dreams that they have for the kids growing up in this community. The Forge is honored to be in the third war. Our vision is to assist families to fulfill their God-given potential. So we hope that in all that we do, the families get a chance to see their children reach higher than the parents did and accomplish the potential that we believe every child coming through our door has. run various programs to assist the families in our community. For children as young as five through the adults that bring kids into our community center, this program's goal is to holistically assist the development of the children academically, in character, and in other skills like music and dance. And so after school is an anchor for us because we really get to invest in those children and those families. Everybody knows Michaela. Everybody who meets her will never forget her. She's, she's very um, inquisitive, which is great, because she asks a lot of questions she wants to know. And we're going to go work on probably math, because um, that's what she's struggling in mostly in school right now. Kids I've tutored, uh, they increase their grades from 60s, 50s to you know 70s to passing, or whatever the case may be. I love that moment when the kid's like, oh my gosh, I understand it now. It makes so much sense. It makes me so excited. <laughs> I honestly just hope that she um, grows up and wants to glorify God more than anything else. And I just really, really hope that she becomes everything that God has for her to be. I really, really do. We have other programs that we use like athletics, which is really a formation program, not just dealing with the kids athletically, which is what attracts the child. But we're looking at the kids' academic development 
and their character development, not just in the game of basketball. And one of our key elements is collaboration, and one of our most recent partnerships has been with the Houston Dynamo, the professional soccer team who has just taken a liking to what we're doing in the life of kids and are coming alongside us and really giving our kids one of, an experience of a lifetime. How many times do you get a chance to have a professional athlete teach you their game where our children are getting a chance to be taught the game of soccer and reinforced in the teamwork concept and in the character concepts that they're already getting through the forge. So the Dynamo is providing us a unique reinforcement experience for kids that are inside our after-school program. Uh, we run a program called Celebrate Recovery for adults that have had various life-addicting situations in their lives, from substances to other behaviors. We run another study to men and women who have been incarcerated called His Father's Heart. And it's co-ed for people who have passed that really want to come and, and let God be a part of their own healing and their own growth spiritually. How do we help you grow spiritually, physically, and socially? Those are the goals of our programs that really help in the spiritual formation of the families that we get to serve. Only God can do what we've seen done in the life of individuals and families in this community. And that's why we welcome friends to help our families meet God in this community and begin to make steps towards family change in one generation. There's a lot of talk uh, about privilege, specifically white privilege, uh, and it makes many of us uncomfortable because uh, we, we think it means we didn't work hard for what we have, but that's not what it means. It means that because I spent my teenage years at a country club and played golf in college, I had doors open to me that didn't exist for others in our city. Brene Brown uh, defines it as unearned rights, things just born with the privilege, like affluence, is not something to be repented of. It's a gift that comes with responsibilities. Jesus was the eternal begotten son. There has never been a man with more privilege on earth. And he died to give it away. So what are we, what are we doing at the forge? We're trying to model Jesus, take the privilege that most have and most of us were born with and give it away. We're trying to serve our neighbors with it by leveling the privilege playing field. Dreaming about, praying for, and actively pursuing a day when privilege in Houston is not primarily defined by race. That's what we're after. To live like Jesus means to take what is of earthly gain and simply give it away. And when we do, we're living into the story that Jesus is writing, and the story that Jesus is writing has an ending that goes like this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, 
for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now when racial reconciliation is a priority to us as a community, we're living into the story that Jesus is writing. And the story that Jesus is writing and the ending of the story is the eternal expression, the eternal extension of Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so let's be sojourn. Let's Let's be a part of the story that Jesus is writing. Jesus entered into human history to take a story of division and turn it into a story of reconciliation. Let's be agents of that story. Let's be people fully engaged in that story. That we might live out your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be people who recognize and see that others' experiences are not the same as ours. Let's stop withholding the compassion of Christ from one another. And let's move toward people that are not like us, as individuals and as a church, that we might be, by God's grace, agents of the single most glorious and beautiful story that has ever been told. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, being brought together and reconciled in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I don't for a second pretend like living in that story is easy. We can follow the narrative of human history and see that it's not. But we refuse to believe it, Sojourn, that your son and his grace is not strong enough to bring people together across lines that have divided and refuse to believe, refuse to believe that the gospel is not powerful enough in a community of people to see it not have implications on our world around us. And so we're asking, we're asking Father that by your mercy and the grace of your Son and through the power of the Holy Spirit we would be agents of the redemptive story that you are writing. We, we know that none of it, none of it gets written apart from your divine hand writing it through us. And so we beg you to do it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.